Today we're joined by such an influential figure at Blackburn Central High School. She's such a joy to see around the school. Uh, it's Miss Rathor. Miss Rathor, thank you so much for being involved or deciding to be involved with our podcast and no doubt leaving your footprint on its legacy. Thank you. That's a really nice thing to say. Thank you. And it's, it's a complete, genuine joy and delight to have this opportunity to speak to you and share my experience. So first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and perhaps with a focus on your earliest years to inform us on how your journey has led you to life at BCHS. Okay. I was, you know, the students will probably work out, I'm, I'm an old lady, I've already surpassed my half century. I was born in the late 60s uh, in the East End of London. My mum is white British, came from Manchester. My dad was Kashmiri, he came to England in search of his fortune. And um, my mum had already had two children when she met my dad, she, so my two sisters are half Jewish. Um, then there was my dad, they got together in 65, I was born 67, and then my two brothers were born. So we lived in quite poor background then. We lived in one room of a house. And then as other tenants moved out, my dad would then rent the room next to it and then the room behind it. And then eventually we got the whole house and then the house got was gonna get knocked down because it was a slum. And then we moved to a place called Dagenham, which was the mm. east end of London. Just talking more about your family dynamic, mm -hmm. it's so interesting. It can't have been the norm at the time. No, definitely not. Um, I don't have much memory of living in Whitechapel where I was born because I had my fourth birthday in Dagenham but my sisters said that when we lived in the East End it was a real melting pot, it was very close to the docks and traditionally many many races mixed and mingled. It was when we moved to Dagenham where when it went from me being four that's when it was a very different area, it was a very different time. It was you know in the early 70s when we moved there and unfortunately racism was really rife you know and there, there were things that happened to our family that we would look upon as quite shocking now but in a funny kind of way we just accepted it it was we felt like it was our lot almost the neighbors had petitions why why do you think you just describe it so interesting how you say you felt like it was your lot well what, what made you feel that way you know you had things on the media on television with you know like in inverted commas, comedy shows, Love Thy Neighbour, where a white guy could racially abuse his West Indian neighbour, and that was for laughs. It was just kind of an acceptable norm that if you were a person of colour, you should accept. It's just a laugh, it's just that it was any derision or anything, mockery, was just part of, not, of being non-white. Wow. And with your white mother, and your Kashmiri father, what would you say were some of the biggest challenges attached to that dual heritage? Would you sometimes perhaps look upon your white mother and expect to be treated differently? I think so. I remember, you know, when we was all together, we were very isolated. Um, we didn't have many Asian friends because there wasn't many Asian people living where we lived at the time. My mum's family, on the other hand, had also um, disowned her. 
she'd brought a non-white partner home. So we were pretty much self-reliant on ourselves. And the sad part was, you know, my friend had a, my brother had a friend and um, we, if we wanted to go and meet him, and I had a, a white friend, but we couldn't go around the house and knock on the door because um, I don't want to use the derogatory word beginning with P, but uh, the their mothers would say, we don't want those knocking on our door, the neighbours might see. So we'd have to kind of meet in like pre-arranged areas. I'll meet you at the bus stop at five o'clock because their, their mothers didn't want us walking up their garden path and the neighbours seeing it. But conversely, my, grand, my mother's mother didn't want us visiting her in Manchester because she described she didn't want um, pickaninnies swinging on a garden gate. So we did rely on each other. We were very insular. Wow, and so you can't really undermine the sacrifices that your mother had to make in order to try and be happy. Like my grandmother also was a Hindu before she married my grandfather and she was ostracised from yeah. her family as well. What do you think made your mother make such a huge sacrifice? Because somebody looking from the outside would think it was kind of social suicide. I think it was social suicide, but I inherit from my mum was... Um, my mum was a non very much a non-conformist. In as much as, you know, even though we were working class, she believed that lit literacy and language and culture and art was not out of our reach. And she described meeting my dad for the first time, and she said it was on the bus, and he had the most striking blue eyes. Wow. And she just said, I looked into his eyes and I thought, I don't care what anybody said. And that's what brought them together. And what one of my strongest memories of living in Dagenham is whenever we went out or whenever my mother and father went out they always held hands always held hands and I think it was her message and my father's message to say look we are a couple and these are our children deal with it so has that played a huge part in shaping the kind of person you've become today I think so I think because we didn't and I know we'll come on to it a bit later on, but by not belonging to a community, um, it taught me resilience. It taught me self-reliance. It taught me not to be clicky and part of a group. And it taught me not to out, you know, treat a person as an outcast because they were different, because I have walked in all them shoes. I'm not saying I'm a saint. And, you know, there might be people who who don't get on with me and I don't get on with them, but it's certainly not because of any skin tone or faith or anything like that. It's just because personalities don't always get on. Do you feel like you had to grow up a lot sooner than maybe your peers, given the circumstances? Yeah, I think when we were growing up, one of the saddest things was, you know, my father didn't drive and he worked very hard. He used to leave at half past four in the morning and we would meet him at the local tube station at nine o'clock in the evening. But for our protection and our father's protection, we both had to have a dog each, and we had an Alsatian dog, and we had a Doberman dog. And every day we'd have to go to the train station to collect our dad. I can't imagine now, as a parent, having to think, I hope my 10 and 11-year-old child is at the train station wow. to escort me home with the dog. 
My dad wasn't even called his real name. My dad's real name was Mohammed Zakaria Rathor. When he first came to the UK, he, someone asked him what his name was, and he said, and they said, oh, that's too long, we'll just call you Peter. Wow. My mum called him Peter. I think every immigrant yeah. with, a, with a foreign name, because I know my dad had an English name as yeah. well, uh, even though Yusuf, yeah. it was pretty easy to say he was called Joe at work. Yeah. And in a strange way, as much as it was to make them part of the community, it was almost almost like stripping part of their identity away from them as well. Completely. And yeah. as much as they accepted them, there was always that undertone of, you'll never be a part of our clique. Yeah, exactly. And years and years later, when I was in my mid to late twenties, I went to I went to Pakistan to see my dad. I had lots of unanswered questions. My mum and dad separated when I was in year ten. And I, I remember being at his house in Sialkot, and I remember him saying quite clearly, and it clicked into place. He said, "You don't understand. Here, I am Muhammad Zakaria. I'm not Peter." So. That was a burden then he carried yeah. around with him all the time. Yeah, I can't imagine not being called my name. All right, I have a pet name. My family have a pet name for me. And, you know, colleagues at work have, you know, they don't call me by my first name. But to be totally stripped of that identity just because it was easier. And how has that affected your identity then? When I was growing up, I really hated everything. I hated being called Miriam. I hated my surname. I hated being brown. I hated having a moustache because that's the, that when you've got dark skin, you've got the dark hair. And obviously at school, I hated just being different. I hated being the only brown face in my school. And I think, I'm sorry, can you repeat the first part of the question, sorry. I said, how has that affected your identity? Now, so, so growing up, I did everything I could to change my identity. You know, I, I didn't belong to either community. And there comes a point in your life where you think, right, what path am I taking? Am I taking, the way I can only put it is, I was too white to be brown. And I was too brown to be white. And... For me, my, I'm proud of my culture now and I'm proud of my heritage and both of my daughters, they're more proud of my culture and heritage and their culture and heritage than I ever was. That's something for me, that, that, that's really fantastic. But when I was a young girl growing up, I just hated every part of it. And I, I remember being in primary school and being racially abused just on a constant basis. And I never forget this, my teacher, and I was in the bathroom and I was crying and I was rubbing soap onto my skin and I was rubbing it with a scouring pad. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, I want this colour to come off. And I was upset and she sat me on her knee. I was in primary school and she dried my tears and it was so prophetic, the words she said. She said, Miriam, don't cry. I promise you when you're older, people will be killing themselves to be your colour. And people literally are, they're lying on the sunbeds for too long, mm. lying in the sun too wow. long. But to this little seven-year-old girl who desperately wanted to be called Tracy Smith or something that was interchangeable, that could almost make me invisible, mm. it was no comfort at all. 
now I embrace both my cultures. I wish I knew more about my Asian culture, but I've learned actually from staff here. I've learned from my Asian friends. In fact, you know, um, working here has taught me more about my culture than I ever learnt off my dad. It was almost a shameful thing. It was like, oh no, do we have to learn about that as well? You know, is there anything yeah. else you could make us feel bad about yeah. to make us more different? So why do you think your father insisted on staying attached to his side of the culture? Is it so that you don't forget? Do you mean when he went back to Pakistan? Yeah. Um, well, he went back to Pakistan. He went to Pakistan um, after my mum, my mother, and father separated. We had no idea because they were of the uh, parenting style that we never saw parents fall out. So when they said they were breaking up, we were just astonished. We'd never even seen them exchange a crossword. I can understand there were personal reasons on both sides of my parents why the separation happened, and I can understand too why my dad went to which was then the family home in, in Sialkot. Yeah. And I can understand it was his identity and it was the way of life he was used to. And I think, he, you know, he was, he was born in 1922. And I think he, he knew that, you know, his life on earth was limited. And I think he wanted to go back to a country where the culture and everything could be what he was used to and what he was born into without having to keep constantly looking over his shoulder and thinking, is someone going to attack me because of who I am? I can only imagine, like, my dad still uh, tells us the stories of the physical fights that yeah. he had to put up with, so I can only imagine the constant, relentless struggle that they had to endure on a daily basis yeah. just to ensure they got to the end of the day in one piece and their family was safe. I just can't imagine it. I personally, I've never felt British. No. Never. Because I remember thinking quite deeply about these things in year seven and eight due to, because of the way I was treated and thinking this can't be right. Yeah. Hearing comments like, there ain't no black in the Union Jack, so you should go back. Yeah, go uh, black home. Go black home. So I remember specifically a time at high school when uh, classmates had said to me, okay then, we've come to an agreement that you're going back home. There was no conversation, that was literally the extent mm. of it. And then for a period of time, for like a week, every day they'd be waiting for me at the school gates. Mm. And every day I arrived, it was, I thought we'd agreed that you weren't going to come in today. Mm. And I don't think many people understand the relentless my heart nature is racing of the torture. You're thinking of it, yeah. Because when I relay that to my parents, we were guests in this country. Yeah. So it was very much a case of just keep your head down yeah. or put up with it or be strong. You know, those kind of those kind of comments where they're meant to be uplifting. Don't cause any more trouble. They're meant to be uplifting, but yeah. in reality that's what they are. They just kind of Minimise, minimise the trouble yeah. that we can get yeah, ourselves damage in. limitation. Damage limitation. And I think growing up, numerous incidents like that, countless incidents like that, I was so torn thinking, mm. this is the only culture I've ever known in terms of being born here, in terms mm. of doing a lot of the things that my classmates do, having a lot of shared hobbies. And yet, 
I'll always be looked yeah, as the other. As the outsider. And the only thing keeping me going was I had all the brothers, so I had a lot of kind of mm. shoulders to lean on. And also thinking back at my father's experiences and thinking, wow, the sacrifices he had to make were tenfold. If I endure these sacrifices, then mm. maybe the next generation will be that much easier. Yeah. And maybe that was the mindset that kind of because things have changed now. How do you think? How do you think your experiences differ to a mixed race child coming to our school, for example, or a mixed race child in our country? How do you think their experiences might differ? Because surely they will still have similar struggles or similar challenges. It's interesting you say that because you know you never really see anything about mixed race people on the telly. You don't really see. You might see not explicitly. No. In a soap opera or a TV show, you might have somebody from a specific country or heritage, but you don't really see a mixed race person. They don't really talk. No. We're still these like invisible people. And I think wherever you're living, if there's two communities, you're going to have mixed race children and that's yes. it. But I, I still think there's not much different. I think things have come on now, you know, I'm hoping that people aren't getting the windows put through all the time like we were and, you know, petitions to keep the street white and the National Front Mm. putting our windows through and stuff like that. But I still think we've not moved on as much where in the mainstream, do you know, could you think of many mixed race people in mainstream? I can't, to be honest. Maybe Marcus Rashford. Yeah. But even even so, even even if even if they are there, even if they are visible, yeah, in the mainstream, it's not explicit in terms no. of their identity. What makes them them? Yeah, and it's such a shame. This, you know, the, the, it's almost like we carry that burden of shame that our ancestors felt. Let's just not say anything. Let's keep our head down. Let's let's not make a fuss. Why can't we celebrate? Why can't we celebrate what we are, who we are? Yeah, we're mixed race, whether you're French crossed with someone from Polynesia, mm. whether you're British and Asian, whether your parents come from China and Malawi. Why can't we celebrate that? And I think yeah. because it isn't in the mainstream still, I think people are still dealing with it. And, I, you know, in the children I meet in school, and I'm really pleased. When I started in 2005, I knew one mixed-race student. I won't give her name, but I remember meeting one mixed-race student, and I was, like, delighted. And now we're getting more. Yeah. But I still see they're still choosing one... I haven't seen them straddle both communities yet. They're still making a choice, whether it's one side or the other. And did you find yourself leaning towards one or the other? Yes, I did. I think because when I was growing up, my when I didn't have any Asian friends when we lived in Dagenham because there weren't any. Mm. And then when I moved to Burnley, when I was in year 10, I made some Asian friends and it was really nice getting to know some of the brown girls. But because I was westernised, their mums thought I was a bad influence on them. Oh, you can't go out with Miriam. She might have you talking to boys or she might make you smoke cigarettes. And I was thinking, well, I was just thinking of going to the chimney. (laughs) You know, it was just something simple as that. And so, or they wanted to save me. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but it was like her Muslim father's not here. She's been abandoned. We must save her with Mm. our faith. And because 
that wasn't a thing for me. I kind of tilted more to a more English way of life. And my brothers were the same. You know, my, my brother Zaid, who's only 15 months younger than me, he got, you know, when he was a young man, he was knocked back. And he was a, a handsome guy, my brother, his green eyes that you'd die for. And um, he was not short of female admirers. But he couldn't go to their house to take them on a date because their parents didn't want this Asian guy mm. turning up to take their white daughter out. It's because it was that generation still. Yeah. And I can remember my, my brother coming home in this rage one day. And he just said to my mum, he said, out of all the races in the world that my dad had to be, why did he have to be Asian? Wow. And it was rage and anger. Just built up resentment. Yeah, it was just yet another knockback. Now he, you know, he's, you know, he's he's happy with his life. And, uh, you know, my brother, my other brother, my younger brother, he's had to face quite a bit of prejudice. You know, he's gay as well. So, you know, he's had to face prejudice from both communities, mm. you know, for for being for being a gay man as well. So I'm glad I chose the English side because if you want me to be totally honest with you, I think it was just easier. It was just easier. I think, do you think maybe that even if you felt inclined towards your uh, Kashmiri heritage, the current life and way of life that you live just didn't, facilitate that? I think especially when I was a younger woman, you know, I was, I was a nightclub manager twice, so I don't think that would have fitted <laughs> with my heritage at all. But, you know, I, I do think that the values that I was brought up by, whether my mum didn't have a faith, but I still think the values that I hold dear to me, that they are strong in any faith or any belief. You know, I believe in equality for all. I believe that no one should be hungry just because I, I don't believe in class. I don't believe in that kind of society. I don't like prejudice. I'm a great believer in sharing what we have. I'm a great believer in charity. And I think those are things which are important to many different faiths, but I think they're also important tenets to just good, decent people. And do you think that children in mixed race families have that issue with their identity when they feel like the values from their different backgrounds are so contradictory. So for example, if a person has a Muslim father mm. and a atheist yeah. mother, that must be really difficult to kind of absorb and try and please, so to speak. It was it was a little bit bonkers. But, you know, it wasn't like our father did not, and I don't want to use the word impose, but I can't think of a word at the moment, but he didn't kind of force us to be Muslims. All right, all the food we had was halal food. Um, he didn't insist that I wore um, a veil or anything like that. He wasn't bothered if I wore a dress, things like that. He, we knew he had his whole, his Quran upstairs and we knew we didn't touch it. We knew he had his topi hat and they would go to mosque in it every now and then, but it was usually in his pocket because if he was seen walking through Dagenham with his topi hat on, he would just be a target again. Yeah. It was a bit weird when we'd go to the, we'd have to go a few miles on the tube train to get our meat because there was no halal butcher. And remembering, 
you know, my dad pointing to the chickens that he wanted that were still running around. And then, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, that's our dinner, you know. So I think it, it was kind of a dichotomy, really. You know, on one hand, we were sitting there eating egg and chips and watching It's a Knockout or Nationwide on television. But I think there's one thing that's a very strong memory, and there used to be a TV show on, and it was on BBC, and it was called Nazindagi Najivan. And I remember in the 1980s, my dad bought us a video, and we lived, we lived in poverty. And sadly, my dad was a gambler as well, and he must have got some money on the horses or something like that, which was really weird. We've got this lino floor, milk crates, poor as church, and then church mice. And then he brings home a colour TV and a Ferguson video-style video. And we're like, oh, my God. And um, he record, He used to record this on a Sunday morning, Nizindagi Najivan. And me and my brother Zaid used to think, oh, what's all this rubbish? You know? And we recorded over it, and it was something like some kind of Top of the Pops or something. Right, okay. And I remember my dad really going bonkers when he came home and he went to put it on. And he must be looking forward to it all day, and, and it wasn't on it. And as an adult now, that was his taste of home. That was something in his home language, with the music that he liked, mm. a little bit of news, and a little bit, you know, I think it was a bit like the one show that like yeah. we'd have now. But we'd destroyed that. Top of the Pops was more important. Yeah. I think that was, so, yeah, there, there were the different changes. But if I can just add, I think what was really sad for all of us was my sisters they are white skinned but because they were our sisters they suffered awful racial abuse too because your dad was a p word i mm. don't want to say it. and that's what they describe you know and my sisters also were attacked my sister was pregnant she was attacked wow. because of the color of my father's skin it's you know what I mean? It's not. It's it's like throwing that hand grenade in. It affects everybody. You know, it was a it was a terrible time. So, do you think parents of mixed race children can do more to prepare them for their identity journey? I don't know really because, you know, if it, my sisters are mixed race but they they're white, they didn't need any preparation. If if society celebrated, if you were born yeah. in a in the same family today yeah and society celebrated both sides of your family how do you think that might have affected your engagement with both sides both cultures in terms of who you become as a person i think it would have made it a lot easier i wouldn't have had to make any tough decisions about friendship groups or which path do i take do i walk the brown path or the white path sure i could have just said hey why can't these paths walk alongside each other why can't I walk on this path one day and walk on this path the next day? But unfortunately, I still think we're a long way from that. Even if you think now, you know, whatever my views are on the royal family, when Prince Harry brought this mixed-race woman up, I thought, finally, we're going to talk about mixed-race people. And, you know, the press demonised her. Oh, she's conniving, she's manipulative, all that stuff. Hello, the royal family are mixed race. They're half German. Yeah. We've all forgotten that. So I think until the media and the mainstream and, and the society just gets over the facts, if we all took a DNA swab, we're all mixed race. I took my DNA swab. I'm 15% Irish. Wow. 
but I'm half Kashmiri. <laughs> you know, I've got South Sea Islandry. Let's all take a swab. I would love that to happen. Let's all take a swab and let's just see how mixed race we all are. I think it's in people's interest to keep people divided as well. So that's a yeah. conversation for another day. But yeah, I guess maybe that's why we're not quite there yet. I think we're quite a bit away from there yet, unfortunately. I think it might be the generation we're teaching now. I think it may be their children, hopefully. Yeah, or on the other hand, this new generation might not be that in touch mm. with their... Especially, I'm just thinking in terms of our generation, as mm. in second generation uh, immigrants from you know, the subcontinent. Yeah. We still had a really strong connection with our Indian or Malawian heritage, yeah. wherever, and they genuinely celebrated it. And even though I never felt accepted, mm. it almost amplified my culture at home. Yeah. Which meant that now that I'm older, I'm still very much in touch with it in terms right. of like language and celebrations and values, etc. And now I'm at a really good position where I can genuinely take enjoy. And, and enjoy from both. Whereas, um, whereas our children, for example, like mm. my son, my he doesn't speak Gujarati no. at all. And I don't think he will. He no. may not. He may not come to even speak it. So, I think maybe it's kind of inverse of my. And my is he not speaking that language because you've not taught him, or he's yeah. not wanted to learn? We just speak English at home. Right. And we try. We have. We have, We go through these phases where we try and instill it. But unless you're absolutely immersed in it, absorbed in it, mm. uh, unless you're immersed in it, it's difficult to pick it up. So maybe because we've not placed that same value on it. Yeah. Maybe that's the reason. So as generation goes on, I think, like you said, I know it might, it might take much longer yeah. for people to genuinely enjoy a different culture when when they're faced with the same one in yeah. in, in real life. And that's what I don't get. You know, you get people from you know somebody from who's born and bred in the UK, white British. They will go abroad. They'll, and they'll go to India and they'll want to have all the Mendy, they'll want to try the saris on, or they'll, they'll go to Sri Lanka or they'll go to Africa and want to try it on. And it's celebrated. Mm. However, it's still, you know, you're talking about language. I, I ideally wish... My dad was a highly intelligent man. He could speak all the Asian languages, not just one or two. He could do algebraic formula in his head. He was very, very intelligent. But he never... He never encouraged us to learn it. It was almost like it was a shameful thing. It would just make us more Asian mm. if he taught us. Instead, he made us learn Russian. So randomly. So living in this poverty-stricken area in the east end of London, which was deeply racist, my mum and dad's belief was if we went to go and live in the Soviet Union <laughs> oh, wow. in the 1970s, that would be our escape out. So... Luckily, because I loved language, I enjoyed the less Russian lessons. I've lo forgotten a lot of it now, but really what I'm enjoying is interacting with some students who do speak Russian here. And I'm also working along with some kids who are wanting to learn Russian, so we're learning on this journey together. But in the work I do, I sometimes sit there and scratch my head and think, Dad, why didn't you just at least, at least teach me one of them? Punjabi, Urdu, Pashto, Arabic, all the languages you could speak. Just 
you made it so much better. Because I think, f- yeah. from from your perspective, that would have created a stronger bond and link between both yeah. of you and your culture. But from his point of view, he didn't want to equip you with something that he felt wasn't going to benefit you. From his yeah. warped perception or perception of that time, yeah. he, he, our parents do everything to protect us. Everything yeah. they do is to protect us. So he must have, I don't know, he may, he may have resented himself for it. For, you know, for not allowing that connection, mm. he didn't want to hurt you. He didn't want to protect. He just wanted to protect you. It was just maybe yeah. That was the, maybe I, that was the the perception, which now seems warped. Yeah, it's a bit bonkers. Yeah. But I think yeah, I can agree with what you're saying there because you know my dad. It's a cliche, but my dad, you know, when he first came to the UK, he does remember seeing the signs and the notice in the shop, you know, in the guest house windows: no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Yeah. And you know, and it, when he he speak he spoke about sharing a room with seven guys, and this this it he said they'd go working shifts, and the bed was never cold. Yeah. One man would get up, and the other man would literally get in, yeah. and that was it. And you know, that's how they lived. And I think to him, to <clears throat> to teach his children a nation language, to us it had been like, oh for God's sake, it's bad enough that we've got we've got all this. You know, it it was like to us. I think it was adding like more brownness to yeah. us, and it was like we don't. I'm trying to get rid of this, and and I think he wasn't encouraged. I, th- I don't think we encouraged him either. Mm. I don't think we embraced it either. We it was a different time in the 1970s and 80s, where the last thing you wanted to do, like you know, like I said, you had comedy shows where people were browning up, and it was all so very funny. And he wanted you to. He wanted to distance you from all yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I remember my mum saying to me, "Oh, Minnie, inside you is this flaxen-haired, white-skinned maiden struggling to get <laughs> out. Just accept who you are." And and I thought, "Yeah, you're right." So yeah, yeah that I think yeah. So what inspired you to get into education then? So obviously, as I spoke earlier about my love of language. And um, when I was at school, I can remember a few teachers who were very, very kind. And I can still remember their names in primary school and secondary school. And my expression was always writing. And I remember, you know, we had quite a... On top of all the racism and stuff, it was quite a... A difficult home life, quite chaotic, and it wasn't always a safe place. And I remember the English teacher in my secondary school saying to me, if you ever want to write something else that's not your homework, just write it in the back of your book. I'll always check the back of your book. And that was, like, my escape. And... As I grew older and felt like, like I said, first of all, I want to be a journalist and I couldn't live unless I was a journalist and I decided once I was a journalist, I don't want to be a journalist. I wanted to work with young people. I wanted to, I thought I'd be a teacher, I'd be an English teacher. And uh, I got accepted into Edgehill University in 2005 and then the job at Blakewater College came up and I thought, well, the last time I was actually at school was when I was at school. I'll just do this job for a year and see how it goes. And I deferred my place. I wanted to be an English teacher, still couldn't live unless I was an English teacher. <laughs> and I deferred my place for a year. And then 
I didn't go to university and I respect not just every teacher in this school, I respect every teacher in every school because I know I'm, I'm passionate about language, dead passionate. And I know if I got excited and I wanted to... I know teachers teach the subjects they're passionate in. Yes. And I know if I was teaching a lesson or prepared a lesson I was passionate in and that lesson was disrupted and destroyed, I think I would have taken it quite personally and been devastated by it. And I think every teacher here, or every teacher full stop, they've got so much strength to carry on doing it, knowing that not everyone's going to be receptive or be as passionate as they are, but they still walk that same path, knowing that maybe one or two will be that receptive and carry it on. So I'm a frustrated English teacher, but I know I could never do it. Yeah. But my respect for every teacher is immense. I think it's just about keeping their needs yeah. in front of you, even mm. if they don't see those needs themselves. Yeah. Because we've all heard things like, for example, even yourself, when you talk about your father, mm. why didn't you teach me at least one of those languages? That's you looking through the lens of today, yeah. knowing what you know today. Whereas back in that moment, yeah, well, he knows been, you'd have resented him for yeah, it. Yeah, but so, been like, for God's sake, Dad. Yeah, but, but now, but everything that he did it makes sense now. Mm. So I think as a teacher as well, I think you kind of usually kind of keep that at the forefront, knowing that they're not all receptive right now, but I know that one thing that I've said yeah. will could be the impetus for them to go on to do amazing things in their life, even if it's nothing to do with English. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty strong driving force. But the fact that you all just keep going, whether it's this school or the top school like Eton or something, wherever it is, the fact that you'll just keep going, keep going, almost like like a cavalry, a bit like, and I don't want to over-dramatise it, you know, Tennyson, half a league, half yeah. a league, half a league onward, you're going to keep going. And if there's guns to the left and guns to the right and there's, <laughs> there's casualties along the way, that the battalion of teachers just keep marching. For the cause. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that is, you know, any teacher anywhere, yeah. I have so much respect for, because I don't think I have all those qualities and by working in the school, it made it, it opened my eyes and I thought, well, maybe I'm not cut out. To, I wasn't cut out to be a journalist. Maybe I'm not cut out to be a teacher, but I've got, you know, I'm thinking that skills are learned along the way growing up and things like that. I can share, I can teach in a different way, but not in a classroom. If you had to summarise the two halves of your life, so you're earlier years, your childhood, and now your later years in one word, how would you describe them? So one word for your childhood and one word for now, how you find yourself now? I would say, for my younger years, I would say bleak. I would say for where I am now, I would say... complete I've come to terms with who I am and I've come to terms with how I felt as a younger child 
if that makes sense. And I don't, and it's not sitting on the psychologist's chair. It's nothing like that. I think I've come to terms with when I was a younger person. I thought this was my lot. I'm always going to be racially abused. You know, I'm always going to be that person. You know, the person who smelt of curry, the person who was poor, the person whose dad was Asian. And as I got older and became a parent myself, I can look back and think, well, that was, it was bleak for many, many, many different reasons. Mm. But the person I am now, I'm glad I've had that journey, if that makes sense. Yeah. Are you happy? As happy as I can be without winning the lottery. <laughs> Would you share the money if you won it? Yes, definitely, yes. There was a teacher who came to me last year, I won't say her name, and she said, oh, I've just been thinking, um, if I won the lottery, could I give some money to you? I was like, I'm... Yes, please. Because you can't gamble. If I won the lottery, would you be able to accept the money? And um, I just, I'm, I'm glad these things are keeping you up at night, my, <laughs> my, my future. Yeah. But um, you hadn't gambled it, you see. It was a gift. So. Exactly. So, yeah, there you go. Where where on the morality line do you stand? It's like, it's like needle, I, isn't it? Yeah. I, you just reminded me of something. When I was at high school, I remember it was a Monday, it was a Monday afternoon, and I never used to have lunch at school because mm. it was just a sea of white. Yeah. And I could not be, and I can't swim. Yeah. So I'd be drowning. I can't swim for the same reason. <laughs> oh my God, it? yeah. And um, I remember just standing in queue because I went for the one day, um, the, it was a friend of mine, right? And he bring me a chocolate every single day without fail. It was another Asian lad. And um, that day, and that was my lunch. That's how yeah. bad it was. I just literally have a chocolate for lunch. And he never, he was absent that day. So I thought, right, I'll have to go to the lunch queue. I'll just pick up something, a yeah. sandwich or whatever. So I stood there, it was a Monday, I remember. And uh, there was a girl and a guy in front of us. I think they were a year older. And I saw her looking at me, making a very brief eye contact, oh, yeah. a glance. And she looked at her and she was like, oh, what's that smell? Can you smell it? And he was like, no, no, what are you about? And she was like, can't you smell that? I think it's curry. Mm. And she looked back and she said, I'm laughing about it now because yeah. that's how he coped, right? Yeah. She laughed, she turned around and she went, ah. It's you. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, I just remember thinking, no, it's, it's Monday. Yeah. My parents have not been cooking curry yeah, on night. It's definitely yeah. not me. If it was the midweek, yeah. I might give you the benefit of the doubt, but it's not me. But, um, and I think that's it. It's, that it's was weird how these memories, these big yeah. memories become core memories and they yeah. linger forever. You were brown, so you had to smell of curry. You know, and and now we have National Curry Week in October. Yeah, and I bet you that that person who said that, I bet she looks forward to a, oh let's <laughs> let's have a curry on the way home. Oh, I'm not cooking tonight. Let's get a takeaway. You know what I mean? And I think now she might look back and cringe at that. But I think at that those times, like we were talking about mainstream and the way people are portrayed, it was just a throwaway line. Oh, she thinks of curry. Ha ha ha! That's funny. It doesn't. No one. You know, the resonation that it had with you and how it resounded with me growing up, that it was this disposable line. Yeah. But it, it cut deep. You still very remember much, it. Very much so. You can remember it now. You know, I sometimes feel, I mean, now in a nice way when I'm cooking curry, my neighbours all kind of come with a begging bone and say, we could smell <laughs> curry on the street. We knew it was anybody else. And they were like, 
and it's like a, it's almost like my, my signature dish is my butter chicken and it's like um, a source of currency so not long ago my neighbor my daughter just had a baby a few years ago and my neighbor at the end of the block he'd brought like a baby car seat that had never been in an accident and some baby gates and bits like that and he said are these any good for your eve and i said oh thank you i said would you like some money for it and he looked a bit shifty and he went, <laughs> and I went what he says well, do you know next time you make your butter chicken? And I remember making this big pan of butter chicken because my next door neighbour had found out about the conversation. And I told Mrs. Bowker, she's left now. And I remember having to kind of make all these, what started off as a pan of butter chicken, I'd made like, I was like Mrs. Patak, <laughs> all these currencies of outstanding debts. Well, yeah, you did pick, collect my parcels for me that time. You was, I was on holiday for two weeks. Here's your butter chicken. Thanks for the baby gate. Here's your butter chicken. Here, Mrs. Balco. I did promise you the next time I'd make butter chicken, here's your butter chicken. And it's funny, whereas when, when you were a kid, it was like, Mum, do we have to eat that? For God's sake, you know. And Well, do we? Yeah. And now you're on a pedestal. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, neighbours would come over, just like some quite left-leaning friends, you know, a bit right on. And they'd come over, and it was more like, I felt like they'd come to the zoo almost to see the exhibits. You know, like, oh, I'm going to eat with a real Asian family and eat real Asian mm. food. And it wasn't like they were visiting us as friends. They were visiting us as like it was... As an experience. As an experience. And then not long ago, I had the only five, three or four years ago, I had this same experience. So there was this kind of lady, she, she lived on my street further down. And I'm the only brown face on my street, but it doesn't bother me at all. There's, there's no bad feeling about it, but I'm just saying this to illustrate it. And I kind of knew where to say hello to, but we weren't like firm friends. And she insisted that she was having a girls' night together and please could have come. And I remember thinking, oh, God, I'll come home from work and I want to just put my tracksuit on and take my makeup off and sit in front of the telly. And I tried to think of every excuse... And I thought, right, I'll just go for an hour. So I said, all right, I'll go. She says, we're doing a bit of a Jacob's Joy. And I thought, here it comes. Could, I'm just wondering if you could do something. So I thought, well, I'll just do some Bombay potatoes because it's quick and easy. And I kind of, when I got, when I went in, it almost like I was being paraded in. And as I got in, she went, and this is Miriam. And she's brought some, oh, Bombay potatoes. Is that an authentic recipe? And... And I went, well, it's just a recipe that I've always used. And then as I sat down, one of her well-meaning friends just made it all the worse by saying, I have an Asian friend too. And I just remember saying, that's really lovely. I have a number of white friends as well. And I just thought, are we still here? What a bizarre thing to say. Yeah. Sorry, I probably talked too no, much. No, no, it's absolutely fine. Uh, final question then. Do you feel that those experiences, and it's obviously kind of, you don't know, but those experiences that you had as a child or endured as a child, mm. do you feel like you would be the same person today had you not experienced those things? No, not at all. No. I wouldn't have been a resilient person. I wouldn't have been able to face fears I wouldn't have been able to walk into a room full of strangers because obviously when you were the only brown person in in your class or your school, you're walking into a class full of strangers. So no, I wouldn't be that person. I'd have probably been a, a completely different person. 
a so lot they, different. They say, don't they, that they ch- your childhood shapes you, but mm. it seems like yours forged you. I think so, into, yeah. Into a, into, into a force, a force of good that we've all come to know and love. I think, well, thank you, that's kind. But if I can just finish with just one quick story about being the only brown girl, and it's, it's really lovely, is when I started my secondary school education, on the very first day, I was the only child from my school going to the secondary school. And we was all in the, what, the sports hall, and our names were being called out to be put into our form rooms, as they were called. And I remember they got to my, the name was alphabetical, and it got to my name, Miriam Rathor, and I just thought, oh, that's it, I'm going to have to say yes, and everyone's going to look at me, and that's it. And I, before I could answer, this girl stood next to me, and she was a white British girl, and I'd never met her before. And as I hesitated to say, yes, miss, she just said, yes, miss. And I remember thinking, that's interesting. And then when her name came up, funny enough, I always wanted to be called Tracy, and her name was Tracy, but she had a German surname. Her surname was Schutz. And when it was her name to be be called out, Tracy Schutz, and she looked down. And it was unspoken almost. We didn't know each other, and I just went, yes, miss. We made friends on that day. We made friends from being 11. We've been friends for over 40 years. We've never exchanged a bad word. We've never, ever fallen out. And even though I moved away from Dagenham to Burnley, we kept in touch. We shared stories of our first ever boyfriends, our first kiss, our first children, her first, second and third marriage. When the day I got married, it was her, not my sisters, who helped me into my wedding dress. And I wouldn't have wanted anybody else. Mm. That was a lovely story. So I just wanted to let you know it wasn't all kind of this barbaric, National Front, Britain first, yes, all those terrible things. But out of that became my bestest, closest friend with this telepathic bond. We were both ashamed of our names. Mm. And chance threw us together that we stood next to each other. Wow. So yeah. That, despite it sounding like a bleak yeah. memories and maybe those bleak memories are quite overpowering. Yeah. Amidst those were lots of silver linings which That was wonderful. Which you can yeah. find still find joy in. And the funny thing is cause I've been pastoral manager for year seven for a long time. And um I usually say to the children in the assembly, on my first day in year seven when I joined secondary school and I tell this story and then I'll say to Tracy she, and she, she, I know she always, she always says, you've not told them that story again, have you? Those poor kids. <laughs> but I know, really, she likes of it, course, tell it. Of course, You know. It, it kind of makes it, makes it all real, keeps it all real. Yeah, and it reminds her that I love her. Of course. You know. I've really yeah. enjoyed talking Mr. to you, thank Thor, you. Thank you so much for your time. Anytime. And for sharing, obviously, very deep and personal things which I'm sure people find really really interesting thank you that's okay and if there's any students who are like I said we are all mixed heritage but if there are children of mixed heritage remember celebrate who you are don't be ashamed and it does get better